It's Aspen Ideas to Go from the Aspen Institute. I'm Trisha Johnson. Each week, you'll hear compelling talks from the Aspen Ideas Festival and other public events presented by the Aspen Institute. He possessed a genius for politics, philosophy, and education. He was a vital maker of his nation's public, intellectual, and cultural lives. He was a master of emotional and political manipulation. He was sensitive to criticism, intoxicated by approval, obsessed with his reputation, devoted to America, and irresistibly drawn to the great world. That's presidential historian and author John Meacham. He's a well-known public intellectual and a Pulitzer Prize-winning biographer. To celebrate President's Day, and in the midst of a heated primary season, we're featuring a talk from Meacham about Thomas Jefferson. Jefferson was the father of the ideal of individual liberty, the Louisiana Purchase, the Lewis and Clark Expedition, and the settling of the West, says Meacham. His book, Thomas Jefferson, The Art of Power, explores Jefferson as both a philosopher and politician who deeply loved America. He strove to create and sustain popular government in the face of partisan division, economic uncertainty, and external threats. Meacham spoke on stage at the 2015 Aspen Ideas Festival in a talk called Thomas Jefferson Then and Now, The Legacy and Lessons of an American Original. I, I'm thrilled to be here. Uh, Jefferson would adore this, uh, absolutely. He never came this far west, interestingly. Captivated and, and entranced by the west, he never really came out or uh, made much of an effort to. He just sent others. But it's the spirit of Aspen uh, and, and the spirit of Monticello are one. Going to Monticello is as close as we're ever going to get to having a conversation with Jefferson. Um, I was allowed to spend the night in Jefferson's house uh, by myself and was able to sleep on the floor next to his bed uh, when I was researching the book. So I was able to wake up as he woke up uh, with the light. He designed the house, and nothing in Jefferson's life was, was left to chance. He designed the house so that his bedrooms would be the place where the sun coming up over the mountains would be the first place the light hit. And so he was able to engage the day at the earliest possible moment. His grave is at the place on the mountain where the sun is at the last part of the afternoon. So he soaked up the sun. He tried to engage as much as possible of life from the beginning of the day to the end. And I think that's a, a, an apt metaphor for, for his spirit. I want to frame our conversation, if I could, by commending to you the words of a biography written about 150 years ago by James Parton, who was really America's first professional biographer. So I have a statue of him in the garden at home. He wrote in 1874 that if Jefferson is wrong, America is wrong. If America is right, Jefferson was right. Now, when you think about it, that's a remarkable burden to put on any one human being. And it's striking that we don't think of Washington or Adams or Hamilton or Madison in that frame. The observation resonates, I think, because in death, Jefferson remains much as he was in life. He's a vivid, engaging, breathing figure, brilliant and eloquent, at once monumental and human. It's more difficult to imagine having a glass of wine with George Washington at Mount Vernon talking of many things. It seems the most natural thing in the world to imagine doing so with Thomas Jefferson at Monticello, surrounded by paintings from France and busts from Philadelphia and artifacts from the dazzling world of the expedition of Meriwether Lewis and William Clark. Parton's observation is oft quoted, often quoted, 
in the literature on Jefferson. Less noticed is the next sentence in Parton's 1874 book. This is what he wrote. Nor ought we to be impatient with those who assert that both America and Jefferson were wrong, since we cannot yet claim for either a final and indebutable triumph. Listen to that again. We cannot yet claim for either a final triumph. Not for America, not for Jefferson. Parton's words come very close, I believe, to capturing a fundamental truth, not only about biography, but about history itself. History understood as the ambient reality of our common lives. History's not merely the story of the past, but the unfolding of the present. As William Faulkner wrote, the past is never dead. It isn't even past. It's an observation that should, I think, remind us every day that, to paraphrase the Anglican Book of Common Prayer, no man lives to himself and no man dies to himself. Whether we like it or not, we're all part of a broader fabric. And as Lincoln was to say decades after Jefferson, we cannot escape history. For history is what we make of our time here. And so for our purposes, yours and mine, the question is what Jefferson meant then and what we can learn from him now. His circumstances were particular, yet the general issues that consumed him were universal. Liberty, power, rights, responsibilities, the keeping of peace and the waging of war. He was a politician, a public man, in a nation in which politics and public life became and remain central and yet eternally controversial. He once wrote, man feels that he is a participator in the government of affairs, not merely at an election, but every day, all year round. In that way, Thomas Jefferson anticipated cable news. <laughs> Had he only been a philosopher, he would not have endured as he does. Had he only been a legislator, or only a diplomat, or only an inventor, or only an author, or only an educator, or even only a president, he would not have endured as he does. He endures because we can see in him all the varied and wondrous possibilities of the human experience, the thirst for knowledge, the capacity to create, the love of family and of friends, the hunger for accomplishment, the applause of the world, the marshalling of power, the bending of others to one's own vision. His genius lay in his versatility, his larger political legacy in the leadership of thought and of men. With his brilliance and his accomplishment, he is immortal. Yet because of his flaws and his sins and his failures, he strikes us as mortal, too, a man of achievement who is nonetheless susceptible to the temptations and compromises that ensnare all of us when we're being honest with ourselves. He was not all he could be. He was not all he could be. But no politician, no human being, ever is. Despite all of his shortcomings, and all the inevitable disappointments and mistakes and dreams deferred, he left America and the world a better place than it had been when he found it. That he did not live a perfect life, that he failed to deliver on the promise of the Declaration of Independence, that he has been condemned as a hypocrite in the eyes of history, are, to my mind, reasons to engage with him, not excoriate him. 
So let us deal now with slavery at the top. He failed to do the right thing. Full stop. End of debate. My own view is that he failed to do so because he was at heart a political creature, and he allowed himself to be constrained by the limitations of the political life he led. But that's an explanation, not an excuse. What can we learn from Jefferson's failure on slavery? Chiefly, I believe this, that the moral utility of history, the moral utility of history lies in seeing that even the finest of past generations were capable of horrendous moral error. Arthur Schlesinger Jr. once observed that self-righteousness in retrospect is easy, also cheap. I agree. Instead of feeling morally superior in retrospect, we should address the cares and concerns of our own time in real time. That's the real moral utility of history. For all his shortcomings, Jefferson remains the founding president who charms us most. Washington inspires us, Adams inspires respect, but with his grace and hospitality, his sense of taste and his love of beautiful things, of silver and art and architecture and gardening and food and wine, Jefferson's more alive, more convivial. 19th century secessionists and 20th century states' rights purists have found him a hero. Progressive leaders from Woodrow Wilson to FDR to Truman have believed him to embody the best impulses in the American tradition of popular government. So let's spend a moment with the man himself. He was lean and loose-limbed. He rose with the sun every morning. He would swing his long legs out of bed and plunge his big feet into a basin of cold water, a lifelong habit he believed good for his health. At Monticello, the bucket that was brought to Jefferson every morning to put his feet in wore a groove on the floor of the alcove where he slept. You can still see it. Six foot two and a half, the Jefferson who came to the presidency in 1801 had sandy hair, which though reddish in his youth, was graying. His freckled skin, always susceptible to the sun, was wrinkling a bit. His eyes were penetrating but elusive, alternately described as blue, hazel, or brown. He had great teeth. He loved his wife, his books, his farms, good wine, architecture, Homer, horseback riding, history, France, the Commonwealth of Virginia, spending money, not paying his bills, and his two daughters. He believed in America and Americans. The nation, he said in his first inaugural address in 1801, was the world's best hope. He thought Americans capable of virtually anything they put their minds to. Whatever they can, he said, they will. To his friends, who were numerous and devoted, Jefferson was among the greatest men who had ever lived, a Renaissance figure who was formidable without seeming overbearing sparkling without being showy, winning without appearing cloying. Yet to his foes, who were numerous and prolific, Jefferson was an atheist and a fanatic, a demagogue and a dreamer, a womanly Francophile who could not be trusted with the government of a great nation. His perennial task was to change those views as best he could. He longed for affection, for approval, and for harmony. He adored detail. He was probably OCD. He noted the temperature each day. 
He carried a tiny ivory leaf notebook in his pocket to track his daily expenditures. He drove his horses hard and fast, considered the sun his almighty physician. He was fit and virile, a terrific horseman and an inveterate walker. He drank no hard liquor, but loved wine, taking three glasses a day and perhaps a bit more with friends. He did not smoke. When well-wishers sent him gifts of Havana cigars, he passed them along to friends. He was described this way. Mr. Jefferson was as tall, straight-bodied a man as you would ever see, right square-shouldered, said Isaac Jefferson, an enslaved Monticello person. Need a built man as ever was seen, a straight-up man, long face, high nose. Edmund Bacon, a Monticello overseer, said that Jefferson was like a fine horse. He had no surplus flesh. His countenance was always mild and pleasant. He possessed a genius for politics, philosophy, and education. He was a vital maker of his nation's public, intellectual, and cultural lives. He was a master of emotional and political manipulation. He was sensitive to criticism, intoxicated by approval, obsessed with his reputation, devoted to America, and irresistibly drawn to the great world. As a lawyer, planter, legislator, governor, diplomat, secretary of state, vice president, and president, he spent much of his life seeking control over himself and power over the lives and destinies of others. He never tired of invention and inquiry. He designed dumb waiters and hidden mechanisms to open doors at Monticello. He delighted in archaeology, paleontology, astronomy, botany, and meteorology, and once created his own version of the Gospels by excising the New Testament passages he found supernatural or implausible. They were much shorter reading. He savored wine, drew sustenance from music, found joy in gardening. He bought and built beautiful things, creating Palladian plans for Monticello and the Roman-inspired capital of Virginia, which he designed after seeing the ruins of a temple in Nîmes in the south of France. He was, and this may be perhaps his greatest legacy, an enthusiastic patron of pasta. He gave Americans the first recipe for ice cream, he enjoyed the search for the perfect dressing for his salads. He kept shepherd dogs. He knew Latin, Greek, French, Italian, and Spanish. And he loved gossip. In his library at Monticello was a collection of what a guest called Regal Scandal that he'd put together under the title The Book of Kings, not the Old Testament one, his. It included the memoirs of the Princess Royal of Prussia, sister of Frederick the Great, those of the Countess de la Motte by a key figure in a scandal involving a diamond necklace and Marie Antoinette, and an account of the trial of the Duke of York, the commander-in-chief of the British Army who had been forced to resign amid charges that he allowed his mistress to sell officer commissions. He pointed out these tales, a guest recalled, with a satisfaction somewhat inconsistent with the measured gravity he claims in relation to such subjects generally. A guest at a country inn was said to have once struck up a conversation with a plainly dressed and unassuming traveler whom the stranger did not recognize. The two covered subject after subject, and the unremarkable traveler was perfectly acquainted with each. Afterward, filled with wonder, the guest asked the landlord who this extraordinary man had been. When the topic was law, the traveler said, he thought he was a lawyer. When it was medicine, he felt sure he was a physician. When it was theology, he was convinced that he was a clergyman. The landlord's reply was brief. Oh, I thought you knew Mr. Jefferson. 
He was the father of the idea of American progress, of the animating national spirit that the future could be better than the present or the past. The greatest of American politicians in ensuing generations have prospered again and again by projecting a Jeffersonian vision that the country's finest hours lie ahead. Engaged in a perennial campaign to win the affection of whoever happened to be in front of him at a given moment, Jefferson flirted with men and women alike. It is charming, he said, to be loved by everybody. And the way to obtain it is to never quarrel or be angry with anyone. He hated arguing face to face, preferring to smooth out the rough edges of conversation, leading some people to believe that Jefferson agreed with them when in fact he was simply seeking to avoid conflict. He paid a high price for this obsession with congeniality among those who mistook his reticence for duplicity. Often viewed mainly as a man of ideas, Jefferson was a man of action, a force of human nature who was not only present at the creation of the country, but who fought year after year and battle by battle to keep America strong and secure. He has most commonly been thought of as the author of America or its architect. Those are the most common metaphors. A figure who articulated a vision of what the country could be, but who was otherwise a kind of detached dreamer. Yet he did not rest once his words were written or his ideas entered circulation. He was a builder and a fighter. He once said as president, what is practical must control what is pure theory. What is practical must control what is pure theory. And the habits of the governed determine in a great degree what is practical. He was a political man. His longtime rival, Alexander Hamilton, once said that Jefferson was, quote, among the indolent and temporizing rulers who loved to loll in the lap of Epicurean ease and seemed to imagine that to govern well is to amuse the wondering multitude with sage aphorisms and oracular sayings, which to me sounds like a sage aphorism and an oracular <laughs> saying. A few words on Hamilton. I suspect more than a few of you, if asked, would say you're a Hamiltonian. That basically means you're an investment banker, let's be honest. <laughs> when I published this book, I had, happened to have a meeting with Chris Christie, and um, he said, you know, I'm a Hamilton guy. And I said, well, that's great, sir, but at least my guy didn't get shot in Jersey. Um, <clears throat> and then I left, and <laughs> there was traffic. It's the second time I did the first, off, totally off point, but this might amuse you. Um, when George W. Bush was running for president in uh, 1998 and so, he was receiving journalists down in, in Austin, running kind of a McKinley-esque front porch campaign. And um, he knew I was from Tennessee. He'd read that. And so as I was in the house, uh, he said, hey, I should show you the picture of Sam Houston. Um, and I said, oh, that's great, Governor. You know, if it weren't for Tennesseans, you know, y'all would still be part of Spain. <laughs> <laughs> And he went, <laughs> eight years of audits, eight years. I'm the best client and an accountant ever had, right here. Hamilton was a brilliant man and an invaluable founder, but he had that wrong. Uh, Jefferson craved control over people and events, 
and he knew that to govern well required unrelenting and often hidden work. There was nothing indolent about Thomas Jefferson. Judged by the raw standard of the winning and keeping of power, Thomas Jefferson was the most successful political figure of the early republic. For 36 of the 40 years between 1800 and 1840, either Thomas Jefferson himself or a self-described Jeffersonian was president of the United States. I'll say that again. For 40, 1800 to 1840, for 36 of those years, the exception being John Quincy Adams, either Thomas Jefferson himself or a self-described Jeffersonian was president. It is an unmatched political dynasty. Roosevelt didn't do it. Reagan didn't do it. No one else has done it. Thomas Jefferson did. More than any of those early presidents, more than Washington, more than Adams, Jefferson believed in the possibilities of humanity. He dreamed big, but he understood that dreams become reality only when their champions are strong enough and wily enough to bend history to their purposes. Broadly put, philosophers think politicians maneuver. Jefferson's genius was that he could do both and be both, often simultaneously. And I would argue that that is the art of power. On the home front, he promised his dying wife that he would never remarry. He kept his word but embarked on a love affair with one woman, an Anglo-Italian beauty, also married, Mariah Cosway. And finally, Jefferson maintained a decades-long liaison with Sally Hemings, his late wife's enslaved half-sister, who tended to his personal quarters at Monticello. They produced five children, four of whom lived, and gave rise to two centuries, more now, of speculation about the true nature of the affair. Was it about love? Was it about power? Was it about both? And if both, how much was affection? How much coercion? Jefferson's connection with Sally Hemings lasted almost 40 years, from 1787 to Jefferson's death in 1826, by far the longest relationship with any woman outside his mother or his wife. Jefferson, as we have seen, fought for the greatest of causes, yet fell short of delivering justice to the enslaved and the persecuted. His imagination totally failed him on slavery. He admitted that he simply could not see how America could practically redeem itself from its original sin. His and his generation's failure to apply his formidable political gifts to that question helped lead to the bloodshed of the Civil War and, one could argue, to the bloodshed in our own country over matters of race even now. As James Parton said, though, we cannot yet claim a final triumph. From his reading of history, literature, and philosophy, and from his years among the statesmen and in the salons of Williamsburg, Richmond, Philadelphia, Paris, New York, and finally Washington, Jefferson knew that one cannot always be good if one is to be great. The political life is not for the pure or for the inflexible. And I would argue that fortunately for his country, Thomas Jefferson was neither. He had a limitless appetite for fame and respect and love and no patience for attacks, slights, and second guessing. Little wonder then that he lived in constant tension between advance and retreat, between the capital and Monticello, between engagement and retirement. To get what he wanted, he, to get what he wanted the most, he had to endure what he liked the least. By the force of nearly two and a half centuries of habit, we tend to view our history 
as an inevitable chain of events leading to a sure and certain conclusion. There was, however, nothing foreordained about the American experiment. Still isn't, actually. To treat the revolution as a set piece, pitting an evil empire of Englishmen against a noble band of Americans, does a disservice to both, for it caricatures Britain and it minimizes the anguishing complexities that Jefferson and his contemporaries faced in choosing accommodation and reform or rebellion. Most Americans were, after all, of British descent, and American culture in the decades leading up to the revolution was deferential to and even celebratory of the monarchy. The whole structure of the lives of Jefferson's American ancestors and of his generation was built around membership in the British Empire. For many, if not most Americans, the hatred of King George III that marked the active revolutionary phase was the exception, not the rule. So Jefferson lived and worked in a time when nothing was certain. He knew and felt that America's enemies were everywhere. The greatest of these was Britain, and not only during the struggle for independence. So I would argue that rather than recalling the Revolutionary War in its traditional way as an armed struggle that began from Lexington Concord, 1775, until the British defeat at Yorktown, it's illuminating to, cons it's illuminating to consider that Jefferson saw the struggle against Britain and its influence in American life as one that had opened in 1764, at the end of the French and Indian War, and did not really end until the Treaty of Ghent and the Battle of New Orleans brought the War of 1812 to a close. So seen this way, which is how Jefferson saw it, or at least exp implicitly experienced it, Jefferson lived and governed in what was functionally a 50 years war. It was a war that was sometimes hot and sometimes cold, but it was always unfolding. It took different forms. There were traditional battlefield confrontations from 1775 to 1783, and then again from 1812 to 1815. There were battles by proxy with loyalists and British allies among the Indians. There were commercial strikes and counter-strikes. There were fears of political encroachment within the United States that could be aided by British military movements from Canada, Nova Scotia, or Britain's western posts. Posts they declined, by the way, to surrender after the Revolution. There were anxieties about disunionist sentiment in New England and in New York. There were terrors about monarchical tendencies wherever they might be. Anything that happened in either foreign or domestic politics was interpreted through the prism of this ongoing conflict with Britain. Even talk of potential alliances with London in the event of war with France was driven not by affection for Britain, but by cool calculations of national interest. Jefferson did not trust the old mother country, and he did not trust those Americans who maintained even imaginative ties to monarchy and all its trappings, aristocracy of birth, hereditary executives, lifetime legislators, standing armies, large naval establishments, and grand centralized financial systems. When Jefferson sensed any trend in the general direction of such things, he reacted viscerally, fearing that the work of the revolution and of the Constitutional Convention was at risk. The proximity of British officials and troops to the north of the United States and to the strength of the British fleet exacerbated these anxieties. So the question becomes, was Jefferson paranoid about such possibilities 
especially from the Treaty of Paris in 1784, which marked the end of the revolution through his presidency, which ended in 1809. Perhaps he was paranoid. Was he engaging conspiracy mongering? Yes. But sometimes, as we know, paranoids have enemies, and conspiracies are only laughable if they fail to materialize. Jefferson's fevered fears about a return of monarchy, which was often shorthand for a restoration of British influence and an end to the uniquely American enterprise and self-government, were dismissed as fanciful, fanciful by no less a figure than George Washington. But in the climate of that time, a time of revolution, of espionage, of well-founded terrors that the American Republic might meet, the dismal fate that all other republics had met, Jefferson's sense of Britain as a perennial foe is unsurprising and essential to understand. He thought he was in a perennial war. And so he spoke and acted in tones and terms that may seem extreme, but which were natural if one saw the world as he saw it. So from Hamilton's fiscal program to John Adams's weakness for British forms to the overt New England hostility toward his presidency, Jefferson judged everything in the context of the British threat to democratic republicanism. To him, little in America was secure, for the military success of the revolution had marked only the end of one battle in a larger half-century war. It may seem overheated, and it surely did to some who lived through the same years and the same pressures, but it was real to him. And if we are to understand what he was really like, and what our politics, why our politics took the form they did, then we must see the world as he saw it, not as we know it turned out. So quickly, I'd like to offer three thoughts, uh, three lessons from that Jeffersonian life that might apply to us and to our own political leaders at this point. The first is that great political leaders tend to be in tune with the broader culture of their times. Thomas Jefferson was fully conversant and engaged with the last two to three centuries of Western thought that was breaking over the United States as the United States became the United States during the Revolution. So what had happened in the 15th, 16th, 17th, and into the 18th centuries? You had the rise of the bourgeoisie. You had the translation of sacred scripture into the vernacular. You had the Protestant reformations. You had the Scottish moral enlightenment and the European enlightenment that was shifting the fundamental intellectual orientation of the West from the divine right of kings and of prelates and of popes, from hereditary power to the idea that we were all born with a certain liberty and a certain capacity to realize our own destiny. The American Revolution, for all its limitations, was in fact the political manifestation of a broader European and United Kingdom shift in how we saw the world. It was no longer about the divine right of kings, it was about the divinity within every breast. When Jefferson wrote the words, all men are created equal, he was giving life, giving written manifestation to that broader cultural tendency. Our great political leaders, are the ones who are engaged in those cultural and intellectual shifts in the broader world. The other is the virtue of compromise. Jefferson was seen as a ferocious partisan. In New York, uh, put you in a leg just for a moment imaginatively, put, you, put yourself in New York in 1790. 
real estate was still a problem, so that won't help. Uh, it won't be, it won't be a, a, a nice thing. Um, Jefferson has come back from France as minister to France. He learns from the newspapers that he is to become Secretary of State, proving that the press operation even then was leaky. Um, he goes to New York. He wants to get rooms on what he calls the Broadway, uh, but it's too expensive and too complicated. So he takes rooms on Maiden Lane and immediately goes to war with Hamilton. They are, as Jefferson himself put it, like two cocks in a pit, constantly at each other's throats over the shape of the fiscal system of the country, the nature of federal authority, even the ceremonial of the presidency. Should George Washington return visits when he is visited as president? Jefferson and Hamilton managed to have a fight about that. So you, there was a beginning there. There was a moment where not just partisanship was taking shape. Partisanship, as Jefferson said, was a natural part of democracy. It was the air one breathed if we were gonna have different opinions. He said the differences of opinion have shaped representative government since Greece and Rome. So that was a necessary element. Where Jefferson and Hamilton were dangerously tending in the first years of the 1790s were toward reflexive partisanship, toward my instinct to disagree with something that you say simply because you say it. Not considering the merits of what you say, but if, considering the source, I dismiss it. So Washington, in his wisdom, wrote a letter to both men trying to calm the waters. This is what Washington wrote. He said, how unfortunate it is that whilst we are encompassed on all sides with avowed enemies and insidious friends, that internal dissensions should be harrowing and tearing our vitals. It's a wonderful phrase of Washington, so that's not a big category. Um, <laughs> Washington had many virtues. He was, you know, the gift of gab was not one of them. Um, harrowing and tearing our vitals. It's a reminder that in the 18th century, public life was seen as vital as physical health. Remember, the initial meaning of corruption was not graft or theft, it was disease. Our public life was so important that if we were to become sick, if we were to create obstacles to the full realization of our poss possibilities as a body politic, then that was like a disease, it would kill us. So Washington, uh, Jefferson and Hamilton get this letter, and Jefferson wrote back of the illegitimate son of, of Nevis, um, I shall not suffer the slanders of a man whose history from the moment at which history can stoop to notice him has been a tissue of machinations against the liberty of the country which has not only received him but heaped its honors upon his head. Hamilton wrote that Jefferson was an atheist in religion and a fanatic in politics and an ally of Hamilton said that, wrote saying, I think you ought to get a damn kicking, you redheaded son of a bitch. So. <laughs> George Washington's attempt at family therapy was not wildly <laughs> successful. But in the fullness of time, uh, Jefferson began to see that reflexive partisanship was dangerous. And so by the time he becomes president, 10 years later, he becomes more comfortable with, with compromise. July 4th or uh, July 3rd, 1803, word comes that Louisiana is for sale. He immediately, Jefferson's made his whole life, right, on being a strict constructionist, on not being Alexander Hamilton. If the Constitution doesn't say it explicitly, he's gonna amend the Constitution. He's not gonna go beyond the written letter of the law. So he immediately begins to form a constitutional amendment to buy Louisiana. Six weeks later, he gets a second letter saying that in fact, Jefferson, uh, Napoleon is rethinking this idea. 
and it was in fact the worst real estate deal since Manhattan. So it was a wise, it was wise of Napoleon to rethink it. And in what I think of as Thomas Jefferson's Claude Rains moment, at that point he becomes shocked, shocked that anyone would think he needed a constitutional amendment <laughs> to buy Louisiana. He buys it and moves forward and then justifies it in some of the most important language in the history of the American presidency. So there's, there's a serious point here. Language that Lincoln turned to in the Civil War, that Jackson had turned to later, that Franklin Roosevelt turned to later, which was that the duty of the chief magistrate is not to the strict line of the law. It is to the survival and success of the country. And that what he did, though he had gone beyond the rudiments of the will of the Constitution itself, he hoped it would be as though he had been a guardian for a ward, he had made investments beyond the written word, but that the ward prospered in, in the fullness of time and came to appreciate it. So he saw there that the art of compromise, the capacity to react to changing circumstance, was in fact one of the high virtues of leadership. Compromise is not a dirty word. It is simply the practical result of living in a representative government. And that's a Jeffersonian virtue. And the last is, the, if you think about the culture of compromise and a sense of curiosity, he just never stopped wanting to learn. He never stopped wanting to understand. Lewis and Clark bedazzled him. For him, Lewis and Clark was like a new season on Netflix. He was a, so he, he downloaded it all at once. He binged, viewed it, you know, he adored it. Uh, he put the, uh, he put the different uh, bones in the East Room of the White House so that people could come and see them. He was, in fact, a museum keeper as well as a president and, uh, and was just always wanting to know the next thing. And if you think about democratic leadership, lowercase d, a president, a political leader, a leader of thought who wants to know what is interesting and fascinating to the people is, in fact, a vital, a vital virtue. I'll leave you with this. Uh, Jefferson hungered for greatness. Let there be no doubt about this. One of the most ambitious men who ever drew breath. And the Lord, though he would not have put it that way, uh, faith gave him an epic role to play in tumultuous times. He did not fail to play it. The drama of his age drew him into politics. It was a world he never really left. He wrote a schoolmate, John Page, who was then the governor of Virginia. Jefferson was president of the United States. And he said, we have both been drawn from our natural passion for study and tranquility by times which took, us from, the took from us the freedom of choice. Times, however, which planting a new world with the seeds of just government will produce a remarkable era in the history of mankind. It was incumbent on those, therefore, who fell into them to give up every favorite pursuit and lay their shoulder to the work of the day. To lay their shoulder to the work of the day. He could do no other, and neither should we. That is perhaps the greatest lesson of Thomas Jefferson's life. He engaged with what Oliver Wendell Holmes would later call the passion and action of his time with an eye toward all time, as should we. I'll give Abraham Lincoln the last word, always a safe decision, I think. <laughs> All honor to Jefferson, Lincoln wrote in 1859 on the eve of the storm, to the man who in the concrete pressure of a struggle for national independence by a single people 
had the coolness, forecast, and capacity. It's a wonderful phrase. See, test yourself. Can someone say this of you? Had the coolness, forecast, and capacity to introduce into a merely revolutionary document an abstract truth, and so to embalm it there that today and in all coming days it shall be a rebuke and a stumbling block to the very signs of reappearing tyranny and oppression. Not a bad legacy, that. Thank you very much. Thank you. It's always dangerous, but do you all have any questions? We have a few minutes. I wonder if you could uh, elaborate a little bit on the relationship between Adams and Jefferson. Sure. They were, Adams and Jefferson, um, it, was, it was more, as ever, it was more complicated than, than, than we tend to think. They were very close at Phil in Philadelphia in the 1770s uh, in the Second Continental Congress. Adams conceded a couple of things to Jefferson that I think even now, wherever Adams is, he's a little annoyed by. Um, the Declaration of Independence being the big one. I don't know how many lawyers are in the room. Okay, so I that's what I figured. So sorry about this, but John Adams had a lawyer-like view of the world, and his view was that the day that we would celebrate as our national independence would be the day that the Continental Congress passed a resolution directing that the different states could reorganize their state governments. Woo! You know, that was gonna be the fireworks and the hot dogs. Um, Thomas Jefferson provided the poetry of the revolution. Uh, and so Adams, for the rest of his life, actually, and he actually wrote, that the Declaration of Independence was a theatrical performance and Jefferson ran away with the, the glory of it. Um, even the fact that they died, as you know, on the same day, July 4th, 1826, the 50th anniversary of the, of the Declaration of Independence, stuff you can't make up. I, I wonder if poor John Adams was thinking, you know, the son of a bitch stepped on my headline again. <laughs> you know, um, yeah, so I, I don't know, I don't know. But they were, they, were, they were friends, then they were rivals, and then they were friends. Uh, so they ran against each other for president uh, in, in 96 and in 1800, uh, beginning a tradition of frustrated vice presidents. Uh, Jefferson tried to have some substantive role in 1797 with Adams. Uh, he described the scene. They were standing, in, uh, uh, standing there, and Jefferson offered his opinions. Adams listened. And, at that, and then Jefferson's voice picks up and he said, and at that point I had no further engagement with the matters of the administration uh, for another four years. Um, so they fell out uh, over really a differing vision of, of the country. Adams thought that Jefferson was wrong about the British influence that I described. Jefferson thought that Adams was wrong. And then about 1812, they began exchanging the great correspondence that we all know. Um, Benjamin Rush gets the credit for that, the patriot physician from Philadelphia. He played a kind of Cyrano role in that. Uh, Rush told Adams that Jefferson was desperate to hear from him. He told Jefferson that Adams was, was desperate to hear from him. It was all like passing notes in study hall. Uh, but at that point, they had both come to live, in a sense, with an awareness of their historical role. Uh, Jefferson wrote to Adams, actually asking him to receive a grandson, saying that, I would be honored if you would, if you would let him come see you so that in his age, in his great age, he can say that he once met the Argonauts of old. So that they were fully aware of, of, of their role. And I think it's a great lesson in ultimately in 
the craft and practice of politics, the more people can emphasize what holds them together, it seems to me, the more fluid and, and, and prosperous the process can be. Uh, to some people today, Jefferson is always cited as a champion of states' rights uh, over federal power. Can you speak a little bit to that? He, he absolutely is. It has the virtue, uh, to paraphrase Henry Kissinger, of not being true. Um, now, now, Jefferson was against federal power until he wielded it. I don't know, and you're, I don't know, in my life I know I'm guilty of that. I suspect some of you all are, maybe. But ultimately you have to look at, sort of like what, um, what John Mitchell, the Attorney General, once said, watch what we do, not what we say. You have to watch what Jefferson did less than what he said. No one was more articulate. In fact, to some extent, Jefferson's a, a, a victim. He's both made and unmade by his eloquence. His words live forever. Uh, one of the most important sentences in the English language, is, you know, he wrote. But because he was so eloquent about states' rights, about the need for rebellion uh, every now and then, because he spoke in such wonderful needlepoint pillow terms, um, you sometimes that obscures his actual record as president. And he doubled the size of the country, breaking with his philosophical states' rights precepts. Leading, by the way, the first secessionist movement in the United States was in New England, not in the South. Uh, Pickering and others were, in fact, John Quincy Adams was trying to, to calm it down because they saw that the, the center of gravity, political power and gravity, was going to move inexorably to the South and the West, which in fact turned out to be the case. Um, so, yes, he's championed by states' rights folks, um, but I think if you look at what he actually did as, as president, you see a man very comfortable with using federal power and expanding the state when he believed that it was ultimately to the good of, of the whole. And so um, I'm always very leery of, of anyone who claims, of any movement that tries to appropriate the past for a particular sanction, for a sanction for a given course of action, because it's all, almost always more complicated. The other thing I'd say, we're in the midst of a, of a great debate uh, in the country, as we should be, about the mechanics of memory, right? About figures in the past who, who represented traditions which we have litigated by the sword and, and by important and epical work of nonviolent protest. My view of, of the biographical past is that we learned far more from figures in history, not if we look up at them adoringly or down on them condescendingly, but try to look them in the eye and judge them for what they were experiencing and how did they do facing the constraints and difficulties of their time. Again, not to excuse it, but to explain it. And then to figure out, I have three children under the age of 13, and I wonder all the time, what in 20 years, 30 years, if I'm spared, they will turn to me and say, exactly how was it you didn't do anything about X or Y? When you think about it, we're facing existential issues. The climate of the planet on which we live is shifting radically. The gap between the rich and the poor is perilously wide. There are an enormous number of issues that require 
thoughtful and persistent attention. And I guess I would argue that we should perhaps focus our energies more on resolving the problems of the moment than on litigating the issues of the past. One man's opinion. I'm a, I'm a financial guy, so I- Hamilton. Yeah, I don't, so I'm always interested in how people handle- No money. duels for you. Okay. All right. So I'm really interested in, uh, and this may be an unfair question because it may be asking you to sort of speculate about psychological issues, but- Oh, I hate to do that. Uh, as long as they aren't mine, I'm fine. So you've got a man who is writing down all of his expenses. Yeah. And yet left a life with <laughs> such financial incompletion. Yeah. D does it say anything about him? It says a lot about him. Uh, no, he was, he died in terrible consumer debt. Um, and it was a cataclysm uh, for Monticello and for his, 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 his family um, and the people he owned. And um, so it was, it was deeply irresponsible. So why did he do it? Um, so the question becomes, we know that he was Epicurean in the best sense. So did he believe that the consumption of the moment, the pleasure he derived and those around him derived, because he was very generous, outweighed the need to deal with, with future issues. And yet, as a politician, he thought all the time about future issues. So how do you, how do you balance, balance that? I, my own view is that he believed somehow, like Micawber, that something would turn up. <laughs> I really do. I think that he, he was an optimist in the broadest sense, that it was all gonna work out somehow. And if you look at his life, it's actually not an irrational conclusion for him to reach. I mean, he's born a subject of the British king, and he becomes the third president of a republic that did not exist when he was born. Uh, a job which, by the way, meant a great deal to him. I consider the, the, the epitaph issue, you know, where he says he was the author of the Declaration of Independence, the father of the University of Virginia, and the author of the Virginia Statute for Religious Liberty, thereby guaranteeing that for the rest of history, people would say, oh, how humble, he never mentioned that he was president. It is the world's most passive-aggressive epitaph ever. <laughs> He absolutely made certain that we would say, oh, well, you know, he was president. Um, it's brilliant. I mean, it's one of his great achievements, I think. I've, I'm in awe of that. Um, I, think, I think he was fundamentally optimistic, thought it would all work out, and it didn't. It, it's, it's always been perplexing, uh, as, as I have admired and been grateful to him for so many years, how somebody of his sensitivity and intelligence could have written, all men are created equal, and then participated with slavery at Monticello and the University of Virginia. And right. perhaps you answered it by saying, you have to remember what time it was. Again, which is not an excuse, but I do think it's an explanation. Um, the whole legacy of African-American slavery cannot be put on Thomas Jefferson's shoulders. It would be convenient if it could. It'd be a lot easier for all of us. Um, his sins were a huge part of the nation's sins as well, uh, in the same way with Andrew Jackson and the removal of Native Americans. Um, it was a fundamentally uh, tragic, in the, in the pure sense of that, sense of that word, in the Aristotelian sense of it, it was a tragic sin. 
and he simply gave up. It's the, it's the exception to, to what we were just talking about. And to me, that makes him more interesting, more human than, and it just doesn't lead me to therefore try to dismiss him or put him in a in sort of a penalty box, historical penalty box. If we try to simplify our issues of race and of slavery and of ownership and try to put it off on a couple of Virginia planters from the 18th century, we're really trying to dodge a broader sense of responsibility, I think. And so while it may be convenient, it is probably ultimately unwise to do so. And so, again, I would argue that we should engage more with these figures to understand, to try to understand as best we can, through what George Eliot called the dim lights entangled circumstance of the world, try to understand how did these people who did remarkable things, who built the world's oldest functioning democracy, a world, a world, a country, a republic that has benefited everyone in this room beyond measure, how were they so morally blind to something right in front of them? And perhaps that's the answer. It was right in front of them. And so, uh, I'll go back to Arthur Schlesinger again. Self-righteousness in retrospect is easy, but it's also cheap. And I think ultimately, we're gonna engage history and engage our own lives more fairly and more fully if we do it with a measure of sympathy and perspective. Thank you all very much. With historian John Meacham on stage, the Aspen Institute's Executive Vice President, Elliot Gerson, draws parallels between Thomas Jefferson and the Aspen Ideas Festival. As you think about it, uh, and I think maybe immodestly, but nonetheless, Thomas Jefferson would have appreciated the whole concept of the Aspen Ideas Festival. The breadth of what we do, uh, he was such a polymath from art uh, to science, from philosophy to statecraft. I think I could just imagine him walking across this campus, participating and speaking in almost everything we do. And in addition to that, which, what makes Jefferson so special in the context of the Aspen Institute, it was that he was not just interested in ideas, he was interested in implementing ideas. He joined his extraordinary philosophical disposition with a commitment to action, a commitment to politics, a commitment to changing the world. And of course, those reflect very much the ideals of the Aspen Institute. When you think about it, when you think about Jefferson and the dinners he would have hosted at Monticello, in a sense, it was an ideas festival at every dinner. And so I, I really couldn't think of something more appropriate for an Aspen lecture. That was Elliot Gerson, Executive Vice President at the Aspen Institute. Earlier, we heard from John Meacham, author of Thomas Jefferson, The Art of Power. Both men spoke as part of the 2015 Aspen Ideas Festival. Discover more about the Aspen Ideas Festival at aspenideas.org. Follow the festival year-round on Twitter and Facebook at Aspen Ideas. Make sure to subscribe to this podcast, Aspen Ideas To Go, on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Trisha Johnson, Editorial Director of Public Programs at the Aspen Institute. Thank you for listening. <laughs>